And now, Lord, as we come to your word, we thank you for your word. Because your word instructs us in the ways that you have ordained. And it tells us about you. It tells us about us. It tells us things that we would not be able to gather from nature. And so we thank you for it. We thank you for the work that it does in us. And we pray, O Lord, that by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells and works within us, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see today as we come to your word. Give us understanding. Give us comfort. Give us assurance. Uh, Rebuke us where we must be rebuked. But we pray that you would use your word to conform us to Christ's image. And we pray for our children as well. Uh, We pray that uh, your gospel would be planted deep within their heart. And that in your time, Lord, that you would bring them to saving faith in Christ. We ask these things for the glory of Christ and in his name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the book of John. We will be looking at John chapter 14, verses 18 to 24 today. John chapter 14, verses 18 to 24. Believe it or not, we're covering like six verses. Unbelievable. This chapter has been packed with a lot of things that we need to hear. This chapter has been packed with assurance. Uh, It's been packed with promises, things that we need to hear. Uh, Of course, the disciples are in a position in which they are feeling distraught because Jesus has told them that he's going to be leaving them after three years. And so all kinds of things are racing through their minds. And those things are reflected in the questions that they're asking Jesus as he tries to assure them, as he tries to comfort them. And he's going to continue doing that into the passage that we'll be looking at today. Uh, He's going to assure them that this is not the end. Rather, this is only the beginning we see only in such a finite manner. What often feels like the end to us is often only the beginning of something uh, that God is doing. What God is doing, sometimes we, we have no idea. But what we do know is that God is good and God is faithful. And God has made promises to which He will hold. There are two types of people two classes of people that the Bible commonly uses to illustrate or to represent those who are hopeless, those who are destitute or vulnerable. And those two classes are widows and orphans. The two terms are actually used together in 26 verses throughout Scripture, so they are commonly paired together. And I do believe that this reveals something about God's heart. It reveals that He cares, and deeply so, for those who are destitute, for those who are the most vulnerable and the most helpless in society. In Psalm 94, uh, verses 3-6, to the psalmist asks God, How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour forth words, they speak arrogantly. All who do wickedness vaunt themselves. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the orphans. What a vivid 
and kind of harsh as a striking portrayal of those who are so wicked. So wicked that they would murder the orphan. That they would slay the widow. What wicked, evil behavior by wicked, evil men. And God cares about those who are afflicted and who are taken advantage of by wicked men. Psalm 68.5 says, A father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in His holy habitation. God cares about the helpless and the vulnerable. But aside from being vulnerable and helpless, widows and orphans have something else in common, and that is that they are both missing the protection and the providence of a father or of a husband, that is, of a grown man. But this is where God's people come in, because God's people have been instructed to care for the destitute, the hopeless, including widows and orphans. The first instruction is, uh, is found in Exodus 22, verse 22, which says, you shall not afflict any widow or orphan, which reveals that there is an inclination to do that. They have to be told not to do that because everybody else was doing it. That's what the world was doing. God's people were to be different. But this is immediately followed by a warning for anyone who would exploit or take advantage of widows and orphans. When God says in the following two verses, He says, If you afflict him at all, if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry, and my anger will be kindled, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. That's a sobering warning, isn't it? And in the New Testament, we, we also see these, these types of instructions. James says that providing for the needs of widows and orphans in their moments of need is part of what it means to have a pure and undefiled religion. Now, praise the Lord, honestly, praise the Lord that in our day and age, uh, it, it's somewhat different than it was in the ancient world, uh, in that widows, in our culture anyway, aren't as vulnerable as they were in the ancient world, at least in most of the Western world. They're not, not as vulnerable as they once were. But the statistics on orphans around the world are just staggering. According to UNICEF, the United Nations Children Emergency Fund, in 2018, there were approximately, get this, 153 million orphans around the world. That is one and a half times the population of Mexico, by the way. And that number continues to grow at a rate of approximately 5,700 children per day who are being orphaned around the world. These children live in conditions that are usually worse than poverty. Many of them are slaves. Many of them are lost to human trafficking around the world. It's terrible to think that in the 21st century, there are so many children who are nothing more than just cast-offs from society. They are as vulnerable and as helpless today as they have always been. But the main cause of a child being orphaned has always been that the child's parents, not that they just sent their kids off to, to fend for themselves, but that their parents died. And that leaves children with no one to fend for them, no one to protect them, no one to guide them, no one to provide for them. But if there's any condition that's worse than being an orphan, it's being a spiritual orphan. We're told of a time when Jesus was ministering in the region of Galilee, Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 and 36, 
He says Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. These people were spiritual orphans. These were people who were spiritually neglected and had been spiritually taken advantage of by the religious leaders of the Jews who weren't shepherds of their flocks at all. Rather, they were in it for their own purposes, for their own prestige, for their own power. They had no one, as a result, the people had no one to nourish them or guide them spiritually. And as such, they were just completely lost like sheep without a shepherd. Spiritual orphans. As Jesus has been telling the disciples in chapter 14 of John's Gospel that He will be leaving them, He's been speaking words of comfort and reassurance to them. They were undoubtedly afraid of being left to fend for themselves, to to have nobody who would spiritually provide for them or spiritually guide them. They were afraid of being left as spiritual orphans. But Jesus has promised that they would actually continue His ministry. And that through their love-driven obedience to Him and by the power of the Holy Spirit working in them and through them and dwelling in them, His people would do the same works that He's been doing throughout His ministry and even greater. His announcement that He was leaving has just left them stunned. It felt like the end from their perspective, we can be sure. But Jesus is assuring them that this is only the beginning. So He'll continue to address their fears in the passage that we come to today. And He'll continue to teach them and and teach us why His ministry through them and through us would be unstoppable. Jesus' ongoing ministry through the church was unstoppable because the same Spirit who would dwell in His people was the Spirit who raised Him from the grave. And that's the central point of our passage today. Jesus' ongoing ministry through the church is unstoppable because He lives. So Jesus starts this passage with a very heartwarming statement. He says in verses 18 and 19, He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live. You will live also. When Jesus says that He won't leave the disciples as orphans, of course we understand that He means spiritual orphans. Jesus has promised that He would send another helper. That's what He promised in the the previous passage. Another advocate, if you will. But He wants them to understand that He is not just leaving them to fend for themselves and to provide for themselves spiritually. He's not abandoning them even though the time is coming when He won't be physically present with them any longer. Now parents are designed to counsel, to guide comfort, protect, and support their children. And that's what Jesus has done for the disciples over the course of the three years that they've been with Him up to this point. So Jesus is assuring them that they will still have these things. They will still have His spiritual counsel. They will still have His spiritual guidance, comfort, support. 
Jesus' promise here is similar in many ways to the final promise that we see Him making uh, in Matthew's Gospel just prior to His ascension in what we call uh, the, the Great Commission. Uh, he, he says this at the very end. He says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And we might think, how is that possible? Because He's departing. He, he's, he's ascending into heaven where He's seated at the right hand of the Father. So how is it possible that He would be with them even to the end of the age? And we would say it's possible because of the ministry and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. By virtue of the Holy Spirit's ministry, Christ is still, even today, Christ is still with His people. That means He's with you and He's with me and anybody else who is in Christ, the invisible church. He is still counseling us. He is still guiding us. He's still providing for us. He's still comforting and supporting us. Not physically, but through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Speaking, He is never separated from us. He's never apart from us. We are not spiritual orphans. As surely as the disciples weren't spiritual orphans, neither were their disciples, nor the disciples of the disciples, down to us. We are not spiritual orphans. Instead, we have been adopted as the children of God. That is such a beautiful thing, that we have been adopted. Adoption is such a a beautiful, beautiful action. And we've been blessed with every spiritual benefit thereof. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 34, asks this. It says, what is adoption? And the answer is, adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. How amazing is that? That's incredible. But what are those benefits? It says that we become recipients of of these benefits. What are those benefits? Well, our confession, the London Baptist, uh, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, says this in chapter 12, paragraph 1. It says, all those that are justified, God conferred in and for the sake of His only Son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, having put His name on them, meaning they belong to Him, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by Him as a Father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption, and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. We get treated just like a real son. Through adoption. As A.W. Pink notes, the point that Jesus is trying to drive home to His disciples here is that His people, quote, were not to be like sheep without a shepherd, helpless believers in a hostile world, without a defender, forsaken orphans, incapable of providing for themselves, left to the mercy of strangers, end quote. That's what Jesus wants them to understand. That's what Jesus wants us to understand. And this much... This first clause here in verse 18, this much the church throughout the age, throughout the the centuries since the ascension of Christ, the church has always understood this much very, very clearly. There's a strong, strong consensus on this first clause. 
in verse 18. What the church has not always understood with such clarity and consensus is what follows. What did Jesus mean when he said, when he followed this promise to not leave them as orphans by telling them, I will come to you? Scholars and commentators and pastors and theologians throughout the centuries have been divided on this issue. Some would point out that there are uh, brackets of the Holy Spirit. There are bookends, you might say, uh, references to the Holy Spirit, both before and after this passage. And so they conclude that this must be a reference to Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit would be poured out on Christ's people in power. And, And I'd say... Okay, that's one possible explanation for what Jesus meant when he said, I will come to you. In fact, that is the view that J.C. Ryle, uh, who you guys might know is one of my favorite uh, theologians and authors, that was the position that J.C. Ryle affirmed, and and, and he's good, He's, he's trustworthy. But a second possibility, because there are multiple views on this, a second possibility is that Jesus was, was referring to his return at the end of the age when he will gather the elect, when he will gather his church as he judges the living and the dead. Um, A.W. Pink held that this was at least part of what Jesus meant. And I would say that this is probably the least possible uh, or probable of of all the options given the context. Uh, We're going to get to that here in just a second. But my main objection to this view is that when Jesus returns, Revelation 1.3 says that every eye is going to see him. And he's saying the world won't see me. Uh, so that doesn't seem to fit with, with what Jesus is saying. It doesn't seem to fit that, that he's talking about his return at the end of the age. And that brings us to the third possible explanation, which is that he was referring to his resurrection. And I'd say that this is Uh, undoubtedly the most likely explanation given what he says immediately following this promise. He says, I will come to you after a little while the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Now, if Jesus is talking about his return at the end of the age, could he really say to his disciples, you will see me? Uh, I don't think so, but they would see him when he was resurrected. See, on the third day after being crucified, Jesus rose victorious from the grave, victorious over death, victorious over sin, and redemption for His people accomplished. Paul tells us what happened after the resurrection and who Jesus appeared to. He writes this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 5-8. to He says, He appeared to Cephas, it's Peter, he, he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Now, what Paul's doing there is he's saying the resurrection is so sure Ask one of these people that he appeared to. Some of them are even living among you. Uh, Which he wouldn't say. He wouldn't challenge them in that way if the resurrection were not true. But Paul is telling us of all the people to whom Jesus appeared after his resurrection. It's, It's like a list. But who's missing from that list? Pagans. Unbelievers. The world. 
When Jesus was resurrected from the grave, he, he didn't just like walk back into Jerusalem and announce that he had rebuilt the temple in three days, just like he had promised back in John chapter 2. No, he didn't appear to anyone who remained in unbelief. His appearances were focused exclusively on his disciples and those who savingly believed in him. Uh, Further, he told the disciples here that uh, after only a little while, they would see him again. And and I'd say that uh, if we're talking about the return at the end of the age, a little while, it's been 2,000 years so far, uh, how much longer can we go and and still call it a little while? Uh, I'd say three days, however, would very easily qualify as a little while. They would see Him again. The disciples would see Him with their own eyes again. But the world wouldn't. Jesus coming to them again and appearing after His resurrection is what changed everything for the disciples. You might remember that many of them went back to their old jobs. Peter went back to fishing. The resurrection changed everything. And the resurrection still to this day changes everything because His resurrection guarantees the spiritual resurrection of all who believe in Him. Richard Phillips explains it this way. When Jesus says, because I live, you will live also. He says, quote, having risen from the grave in the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus gave spiritual life that enabled the disciples to see Him with eyes of faith. End quote. And indeed, the the resurrection is significant for every part of our salvation. It it proves our justification, according to Romans 4. That is, it it proves that, that God accepted Christ's sacrifice as an atonement for sin. It also ensures our glorification in the future. Because He rose again from the grave, so too He will raise our bodies into resurrection glory. But the resurrection of Jesus also ensures what happens between our justification and our glorification, which is right now, our sanctification. His life, His resurrection life, ensured life for the disciples and for all who would believe in Jesus. That's what Jesus is going to explain next in verses 20 and 21. Let's look at verses 20 and 21, where Jesus continues and says, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. As a result of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, the disciples would gain a much, much deeper, much greater understanding, a full understanding of Jesus' relationship to the Father. They would know that Jesus is in the Father and that the Father is in Him. They wouldn't know these things. They wouldn't know or understand this without the resurrection life of Christ and the life, the spiritual life, that He imparts to His followers. In other words, without this new birth, Without resurrection life being granted to us, we cannot understand this truth. We cannot understand that Jesus is in the Father and that the Father is in Him and that we are in Christ. 
If we cannot understand the truth about Christ, we cannot respond to the truth about Christ by believing. And that is natural man's condition. He cannot understand. He cannot understand the mind of God. Those things are spiritually appraised according to 1 Corinthians 2.14. We need to be born again. We need resurrection life in order to respond in faith. We need our own spiritual resurrection because without it, we just remain dead in our trespasses and sins. And this underscores the fact that regeneration, the new birth, must precede faith because it causes faith. Or as Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What must come first before he sees the kingdom of God? Must be born again. When by grace God imparts this spiritual life, this new resurrection life, the result is that we understand and believe the truth about Jesus. We only have this saving knowledge because of His work in imparting resurrection life to us. When Peter made his famous confession of Christ, you know, who, who do you think I am? Well, these people think you're, you're John the Baptist or Elijah or you know, whoever. Jesus says, well, who do you think I am? And Peter nailed it. He says, you, you are the Son of God. He, he understood who Jesus was. But how did he know? How did he know that? Who gave him that knowledge of who Jesus was? It didn't come from Peter. No, Jesus said that it was revealed to him by the Father. Similarly, if we know the truth about Christ, if we understand that He is in the Father and that the Father is in Him, it's because of the knowledge that was imparted to us in the new birth by grace, by God's grace. Now, I have to confess that, of course, there is an element of mystery to all of this. We tend to think in such naturalistic categories and you can't explain this in naturalistic categories. But we understand that it has to do with the unity that Christ has with the Father and the unity that we have with Christ. But it is absolutely astounding how the humble, how the, the uneducated, the, the underprivileged person goes from having no understanding of anything about Christ to understanding these things that even the world's most brilliant minds can't even begin to wrap around. Not only will we know that Jesus is in the Father, but we will know that He is in us and that we are in Him. That is a very significant phrase. In Him. Uh, throughout the, the New Testament, throughout Paul's letters, this is a phrase that he constantly uses to, to underscore, to explain our relationship with Christ. Paul never urges his, uh, his, his readers to simply believe Christ, although I think that much is probably assumed. No, what he writes of is the need to believe in Christ. Uh, and he talks of our relationship with Christ as being in Christ. Now, if we were to translate that phrase literally, uh, the Greek word is ice, uh, in, uh, and literally that means into. Uh, so it's t talking about believing or being into Christ. The emphasis, though, is the union 
that Christ has with the individual who has been redeemed, which is so primary to our identity that it transcends every other relationship, every other thing about you. If you are a Christian, then you are in Christ. This is talking about federal headship. If you don't know what federal headship is, we are born in Adam. We are born as children of, of Adam and Eve, as their descendants. All those within Adam are fallen. But in Christ, the new head, new representative, we have life. And so, if you are a Christian, you have a new federal head. You're no longer in Adam. You are now in Christ. If you're in Adam, you are dead in your sins. If you are in Christ, you live because He lives. If you are a Christian, you are in Christ. Before you are an American, you are in Christ. Before you're a male or a female, you are in Christ. Before you are single, before you are married, you are in Christ. Your union with Christ is above and before every other thing about you. As long as Christ lives, the one who believes in Him will also live. And Jesus lives and reigns forever. Forever. Praise the Lord, because that means that we will live forever with Him. What this means is that the person who is truly saved will never fall away because they will live as long as He lives. He doesn't say you'll live as long as you uh, are doing this and doing that and believing and you know, going to church and uh, you know, once you stop doing that, you won't live anymore. He doesn't say that. He says, no, you will live because I live. So we will never fall away. The true Christian will never fall away from the faith. We will never apostatize from the faith. Now, a, a Christian may go through seasons in which they struggle with terrible uh, doubts uh, and with disbelief, but they will never, ever, ever lose the life that Christ has given them. Uh, that's why it's called life everlasting or eternal life, because it doesn't end. Uh, they will never, the Christian will never break away from the spiritual resurrection life that Christ gives us at the moment of our justification. Why not? Not because our faith will be so great, but because as long as Christ lives, all to whom He imparts spiritual life will also live. Now some people call this the doctrine of once saved, always saved. I'm not too crazy about that term, if you know me. Uh, we've, we've talked about that a little bit on our, um, in our Wednesday night studies. Historically, this doctrine has been referred to as the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And from time to time, you might hear me call it the preservation of the saints. It's the same thing. Uh, we will persevere because we are preserved. So, whatever you want to call it, um, we understand that this life doesn't end. Now, what this doesn't mean, this doesn't mean that you can make a profession of faith and then go off and just live however you want to live or do whatever you want to do. It means that the person who truly believes has such a unity with Christ that he no longer desires to live as he once lived. That means that Christ will hold us and preserve us firmly in our faith, imparting and sustaining the resurrection life within us 
until the end, as surely as He imparted life to us at the beginning of our salvation. The life that He has given us, the life that He has imparted to us at the beginning of our salvation, at the moment of our justification, does not end because we live as surely as Christ lives. We live as long as Christ lives. Even though life will throw all kinds of curveballs at us, even though life will be filled with trials and valleys and hardships, there is joy and peace through it all, not because of anything we've done, but because Jesus lives. And because Jesus lives, we live. And we are in Him. And He is in us. He didn't leave us as spiritual orphans. He hasn't abandoned us. He hasn't forsaken us. He is in us. He is with us. And He is for us in all things. If you are truly in Christ, you will persevere. And your faith will never, ever perish because He lives. So, what hardships are you facing this week? What trials lie ahead for you? In these days, we might think, lots. Lots. But the good news is, whatever you're facing now, or whatever you will face tomorrow, you will not face those difficulties. You will not face those hardships alone. And you never face difficulties that God has not ordained entirely for your good. If the Lord delays in returning, He will even be with us in death. But even beyond that, one day, all those who physically died in the faith will be called forth from the grave and we shall see Him on the earth with our own eyes. If you're in Christ, you can say with Job, who said in Job chapter 19, verses 25-27, to I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will take His stand on the earth, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God." whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. My heart faints within me. He's talking about resurrection from the dead. Physical resurrection from the dead one day. And what's astounding is that Job was probably the first book of the Bible that was physically put on parchment, or put, on, put in writing. We live because He lives. As long as He lives we too shall live. But the life that Christ imparts to a person will not only persevere. It will persevere. But it won't just hang on by by a thread. Just barely hanging on. No, it will never grow stagnant. That's the next promise that Jesus makes. It will grow in the knowledge of Christ. It will not just remain infantile forever. Our resurrection life begins with knowing that Jesus is who He claimed to be and our knowledge of Him will grow as our love for Him continues to grow. And as our love for Him grows, our obedience to His commands grows. Now this is actually the second time in this chapter that Jesus has emphasized the importance of obedience uh, motivated by love. Uh, True Christianity, a true Christian faith isn't ambivalent about Jesus. It loves Jesus. And therefore, 
true Christianity will always, always involve some degree of submission to His will. Joyful submission, not not a, not a dreadful uh, submission, but a joyful submission to His will. Now, of course, our submission to His will, we understand this, is imperfect, right? It, it's going to be imperfect throughout the course of our life. No matter how mature we become in Christ, it will always be imperfect. But love will drive the true Christian to desire to please Christ. And that's one of the purposes, by the way, that Christ's commandments serves for us. They reveal what pleases Him and what doesn't. Uh, so there's still a purpose to the law, to the, to the laws of, of the Old Testament. But the point is that through our obedience, we not only please Him, but we grow in our knowledge and understanding of Him until the day that we stand before Him and see Him as He truly is. Obedience to Christ's commandments will lead to a deeper and a greater knowledge of Christ because of this promise that we find here in verse 21. Look at verse 21 with me. He says, He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. What does that mean? What does it mean for Jesus to to love somebody and to disclose himself to them? It means that our obedience results in Christ becoming more real to us, becoming, becoming more understandable to us. His truth will burn brightly within us, and progressively so, as we understand Him more and more. When the two disciples who were on the road to Emmaus, they were distraught, but Jesus instructed them in the Scriptures to encourage them. Uh, they experienced something similar to this. They, when Jesus opened their eyes to recognize Him, they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while He was speaking to us on the road, while He was explaining the Scriptures to us? Isn't that interesting? See, those who seek, those who search the Scriptures to see and learn more about Jesus will have more of His truth, more of who He is disclosed to them through His Word and by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us and illuminates the text for us that we may understand it. See, Jesus isn't promising, you know, if if you keep my commandments, uh, I'll show you visions of myself. He's not promising, uh, if you keep my commandments, I will give you the power to do all these miracles that will just make people's jaws drop. He doesn't say that. I mean, you can see how easily a false teacher can, can take these words and twist them uh, to, to make Jesus you know, look like he's saying something that he didn't mean to be saying and never meant to, to say. No, what Jesus is, is doing here is calling his people. He's calling you. He's calling me to a life of loving, devoted obedience to him, which will result progressively in a deeper and deeper knowledge and understanding of him. Friends, if you know doctrine, if you know it backwards and forwards, if you memorize Scripture, those things are are fantastic. But if you don't take it beyond that, if it just remains something that's up here, facts, facts that don't apply to your life, if you never apply those truths to your life, 
They are absolutely worthless. Huge passages, they are absolutely worthless. I've seen pagans recite passages, huge passages of Scripture. What does it do for them? Nothing. Nothing, because it's just head knowledge. It's not something that is in their hearts. It's not something that they are applying to their lives. Friends, we are to pursue holiness, not for our sake. Rather, we are to pursue it for the love of, for the glory of Jesus our Lord. And that means applying the truths of Scripture to our lives. And as you do, friends, you will see more of the fulfillment of this promise. Jesus will disclose Himself to you more and more. Now consider the promises that Jesus has made just in the passage that we're looking at today. He's made all these promises in John chapter 14. But just in the passage that we've looked at today, He's promised, number one, that He will not leave His people as spiritual orphans. Number two, that He will come to the disciples after the resurrection and to us in the new birth. And number three, He's promised that we will grow in our understanding of Him as we walk in obedience to Him. And at this point, Judas, not Iscariot, uh, Judas that's also known as Thaddeus, uh, he's a little bit confused with all these promises that Jesus is making. He's thinking the way a lot of Christians even today think. Uh, well, why not just present it to the world in a way that they can understand it, and then you'll be even more glorified. It's kind of Thaddeus's or, or Judas's question here. Uh, and, and so he speaks up. Look at verses 22, and, uh, 22 to 24 with me. John writes, Judas, not Iscariot, thanks for letting us know, John, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. Now what's kind of interesting about Jesus' response here is that Jesus doesn't really give him a response to his question, at least not a direct response to his question. And that's his sovereign prerogative. What Jesus says in response to this question is similar to what he has already been saying, but if you'll notice, he tweaked it a little bit. It's it's slightly different. Uh, We've seen Jesus twice now uh, emphasize the fact that love for him results in obedience to his commandments. But here he says that those who love him will what? We'll keep His Word. We'll keep His Word. This underscores the importance of things like going to church, where we sing the Word, we pray the Word, we read the Word, we preach the Word. It underscores the importance of studying the Word regularly and in community. Exposing ourselves to the means of sanctifying grace that God has ordained as often, as frequently as we possibly can. And this, by the way, friends, is why we must obey God rather than men when they try to, when men try to instruct us to do something that would involve disobeying Christ's commandments. Now, that can be just your average person. Or it can be a king. Or it can be a president. 
or it can be a governor. But there is a clear instruction and precedent established throughout Scripture that God's people, that the church, never, ever forsake gathering. Perhaps the powers that be in our society today find God's Word pointless. That's okay. The world always has. Maybe they see obedience to Christ over men as being stupid or silly. That's okay. The world always has. But no man and no woman anywhere has the right to deprive us of the means of grace that God has ordained unto us. No governor, no president has the right to deprive you or me or anyone else of the things that God has given us to worship Him and to deepen our understanding of Christ and our relationship with Him. And gathering is one of those things that He has given us. We must be a people who love Jesus more than anything, even more than our own lives. We must be a people who love Jesus more than anything. And that will be evidenced by our insistence on keeping His Word, on obeying Him rather than man when the instructions that He gives us come into conflict with the instructions that man gives us. It is through the keeping of His Word that we receive the greatest of all possible blessings. What is the greatest of all possible blessings? If you were to think about it, what would be the greatest thing that God could possibly bless you with? Now, I know that many people in our day and age, just turn on God can give up, would say uh, money. Money is the greatest thing that God can give us. But I also think that many in our day and age just look on social media. I hate to say this, but I think we know it's all true. Many would say that health and safety are the greatest blessings that God could give us. No, none of these things are the greatest blessing that God could give us. God never promised health. God never promised wealth because those things aren't the greatest blessings. The greatest blessing of all, the greatest blessing that God could possibly give a person is Himself. To dwell within them. See, God's purpose from the beginning of time into eternity past, it has always been to redeem a people for His glory who would glorify Him by the Spirit and through the Word as God Himself dwells in their midst. Rather than leaving His people as spiritual orphans, God's plan has been to take up residence within those who receive the Gospel in faith and whose faith is evidenced by keeping His Word by obedience to His commandments. The people of God are a holy temple in which God dwells. Paul says to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 6.19, Do you not know that your body, your individual body, is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Friends, if we could just live with that perspective all the time. That we are not our own. That our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The reason Paul's saying that is because knowing that and keeping that in mind should convince a person not to sin. When a person sins, it's because they have forgotten this. 
or they're not living in light of the truth of it. To the Ephesians, Paul wrote, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. That's from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 22. So here's what he's saying. He's saying individually, your body is a temple, but the body of Christ is also being built into a temple, and Christ is the cornerstone. God's plan was never to convince the world to believe in Him through miracles or whatever, argumentation, whatever it might take to persuade somebody. His plan was to dwell in the hearts of those who love Him and keep His Word. His plan was to bless a people by giving Himself to them, dwelling within them forever as their God. Now, we should notice that Jesus concludes this passage with a very stern warning. He kind of shows us the flip side of the principle that love produces obedience. He says, He who does not love me does not keep my words. By the way, what what does it mean to keep His word? It means you treasure it. You're holding on to it. He who does not love me does not keep my words. There are a lot of people who claim to be Christians who live as if Jesus is not alive or dwelling within them. Their concern is often what they can get from Jesus rather than what they can give to Jesus. Maybe they twist the Scriptures to make Him the mouthpiece of their own ideological idols. What ends up happening is that they have a Jesus who affirms everything about them and doesn't require that they obey anything except their own heart. What ends up happening is that they have a Jesus who looks and thinks exactly the same way they do and exactly like the world does. Their lives are therefore marked by indifference and disobedience to Scripture at every possible turn. Friends, do not be deceived this way. Understand that a lack of of desire to walk in obedience to Christ's commands reveals that a person is lacking in love for Him and that their soul is in great danger. The person who rejects Christ also rejects the Father. The words that Jesus spoke, what He's saying here is that these words have the full authority of God the Father behind them. That's what He's saying here when He says, The word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. It's saying, I'm speaking this by the Father's authority. He would have told you the exact same thing. And this is the the answer to Judas' question. He's saying, in essence, the world doesn't believe in me. The world doesn't love me. The world doesn't obey me. The world doesn't keep my commandments. So why then, or how then, can I possibly disclose myself to them? If you spent your life practicing disobedience and disbelief toward Christ, listen, you might not like it, but Jesus' ongoing ministry through the church is unstoppable because He lives. 
Therefore, I urge you today, if this is you, to seek Him for who He really is rather than for what you want Him to be. To seek Him for who He really is by seeking Him in His Word and loving Him for who He really is. If you will do that, He promises you this, because I live, you also will live. And that starts right now. There are two things that we can say of every Christian. Of every true Christian. Number one, there's a desire to walk in obedience to Christ. Which means going to war with the flesh and yielding ourselves more and more fully to the Holy Spirit. But secondly, none of us do this perfectly. All of us fall short. Even the most mature Christians have so far to go. Like Paul, we must confess, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. That's what he says in Philippians 3.12. He goes on to say, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Friends, if your heart desires to walk in obedience to Jesus, you will recognize that you don't do it perfectly. But remember that it is the heart upon which God gazes. So is that the desire of your heart, to walk in obedience? Are you demonstrating that by going to war with your flesh daily? Press on. That's what Paul says to do. Have you failed? Yes, you have. So have I. So have all of us. Press on. Keep going. Don't dwell on your failures. Don't dwell on what lies behind. Forget what lies behind. God has. Why would you hold on to it? Instead, dwell on the grace that God has given us in Christ, which not only renders us a people who are completely forgiven, but also renders us as a people over whom sin has lost its power. Press on then. Press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, as Paul did. And may we do it for the glory of Christ, by the power of the Spirit, because He lives. Let's pray. Our most gracious Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Christ. Thank You for Your promises. And thank You, O Lord, for Your faithfulness to those promises. Father, we confess to You in our own hearts that we fall far short of what You would have us do. We fall far short of obedience. But we pray, O Lord, that by Your grace we would have this desire in our hearts to walk with You, to keep Your Word to obey You. Not out of a sense of obligation, but out of love. Out of nothing more than love for Christ, our Savior and Lord, who died for us. Who shed His blood for us. Who stood in our place 
and bore your wrath against our sins and clothed us in exchange in his own perfect righteousness that we may be adopted and accepted as sons and daughters of God. Help us, O Lord, to live in light of this incredible, unfathomable privilege of being adopted by You. Help us to remember, O Lord, that we have been bought with a great price and that we do not belong to ourselves. All for the glory of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.